Good morning, Fellowship. Whether you're joining us in person or online, it is such a gift to be able to worship with you this morning. Today, our call to worship comes from Psalm 36. And so here, David's invitation to glorify our God. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. As we continue worship this morning, let us do so taking our cues from David. And in that vein, would you please stand with us and join us in singing, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. Taste of his goodness, find what you're looking for. 
Well, good morning, church. The Lord be with you. It is our custom on Sunday mornings for worship to turn to God in a prayer of confession. And we do so because it's good for our souls. And it's just plain honest about reality. And so I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession using the words that are on the screen this morning. Let's pray together. Merciful God. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, hear these words 
of assurance. The good news of the gospel is that those who are in Christ are saved by him. And so the scriptures say in Romans 8, verse 1, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of the spirit of sin and death. Thanks be to God. Let's stand and sing together of the great commandments. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is because of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have peace with God and with one another. And so at this time, please, let's extend the sign of peace to one another as you are comfortable.
The Lord be with you. My name is Tierra, and I am one of the pastors here at Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ um, and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. Uh, if you are new with us, we have um, some connection cards at the Welcome Center. We'd love to get to know you, uh, whether you this is your first Sunday here, maybe you've been here for a few Sundays and you're ready to make that step or take that step to connect with us. Uh, there's some great, fun, amazing, friendly people at the Welcome Center who would love to meet you and greet you by name. Um, as a reminder, uh, we are shifting to one worship um, service on Sunday, July 3rd at 9.30 in the morning. So both families gathering together for worship. And immediately after that, we will have an extended family, uh, sorry, extended coffee hour with um, refreshments um, out in the lobby, atrium, vestibule. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One of those words. <laughs> uh, a special welcome back to our youths um, who um, just made it back from an incredible week of service, of mission, um, and adventure. Quite a bit of adventure. Lots of meaning in that word. Uh, so welcome them back as you see them um, and in passing here. Uh, so lastly, I um, just want to extend again just a heartfelt thank you to you for your generosity to the fellowship community and through the fellowship community, um, investing your time, your talent, and your treasure to the mission and ministry of fellowship um, and our mission partners both locally and globally. I mean, if you have not yet partnered with us, um, you can begin that partnership or you can continue your partnership with us either in person through the giving bowls in the back or online. Um, and at this time, our kiddos aged three through third grade are dismissed to worship adventures. Um, or if you're a kid at heart, you can also go to worship adventures too. So. <laughs> Let's pray together. Spirit of the living God, we pray now, just as we have just sung, that you would fall afresh on us and wake us up to full life in you. 
melt us, mold us, fill us, and use us, especially as we consider this morning what it means to be a good neighbor. And to that end, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, I invite you now to hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love. It comes to us from Luke chapter 10, where we'll begin reading at verse 25. It says this. On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on it. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you have incurred. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, if we have made any headway in our sermon series this summer thus far, I hope, I wonder if you noticed in the reading of the text today that the whole conversation is driven by what? Questions. Questions. There's actually five of them, significant ones, in a mere 12 verses. The whole story begins with a lawyer asking Jesus a question, and Jesus responds not by offering an answer, but by offering up two more questions. These questions lead the lawyer to respond, and then in response to that, Jesus uh, uh, affirms him, which leads the lawyer to ask another question. That question has Jesus tell a story. And by the end of the story, we find what? Another question. By the end of the whole scene, the lawyer has actually answered his own question, and Jesus tells him to go and live it. If you haven't caught on just yet, our series for the summer is all about asking questions, 
big questions, important questions, and we are intentionally letting the Bible, the good book, determine for us what these questions are as we seek to live ourselves a questionable life where we are open to God and one another asking questions. So far this summer, we have asked the cosmic question, what is truth? We have asked a personal question, where are you? And today we shift to a question of social responsibility. The question is, who is my neighbor? Believe it or not, this question of social responsibility is really as old as the book itself, as old as time Just four chapters into the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, we encounter the Bible's first brothers, Cain and Abel, and it's the story in which Cain kills his brother Abel, and then God comes asking questions about it, and Cain responds to God's question with his own defensive kind of question. He retorts saying, am I my brother's keeper? And in doing this, he is assuming, of course, that he is not his brother's keeper. He thinks that the answer is no. He's presuming a world of total freedom, of radical independence, of absolute autonomy. He thinks that the world is arranged in such a way that it is always me without care for you or anyone else for that matter. Meanwhile, as the story goes... Jesus, or God, seems to think otherwise. And ever since, for millennia, generation after generation has been asking this question afresh. Who is my neighbor? And am I their keeper? Or is this really just a dog-eat-dog kind of world? To get us in a neighborly mood, I want to introduce you to a few familiar, famous neighborly faces here. We have some that you might know up there. There's, first of all, Jake from State Farm. They have taught us well to sing the jingle, like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. It is the modern version of the old words found in Deuteronomy chapter 22, where the instruction is that if your neighbor ends up in any kind of trouble, if his donkey falls in a pit or whatever, the neighbor is obligated to help. Deuteronomy 22 is the ancient version of modern insurance, if you will. The next one over there is Ned Flanders. If you remember Ned Flanders from the TV show The Simpsons, Ned Flanders is the epitome of the annoying neighbor. He's a nice guy, but he's really also quite a bother. In fact, if the song from State Farm were to be put on Ned Flanders, it would be like a good neighbor, stay over there, right? (laughs) Ned Flanders actually embodies Proverbs 25, 17. The the text actually says this. If you go into your neighbor's house too often, be careful or they will hate you. That's what it says. The third photo over there of our famous neighbors is Mr. Scrogers, the fellowship play on Mr. Rogers. He's sitting next to Mr. McDealy there. And that is uh, immediately before my mustache fell off, if you remember that particular moment. I don't know if that displays anything particularly biblical, uh, but 1 Corinthians 15 says, um, bad company corrupts good character. So maybe that's what's going on in that text. I don't know. 
Today's story, however, is actually the Bible's most famous neighbor story. And I'd love to unpack it with you today according to its three scenes. Scene number one is the original context. There is a lawyer who stands up to ask Jesus a question. We don't know exactly how this unfolded because all we have is what is included in the text. But it seems to be that Jesus is doing what he's often doing. He's teaching his disciples, either indoor or outdoor. They're likely sitting down, kind of like that up there on the screen. And then all of a sudden, a lawyer who is apparently in the midst stands up and asks Jesus an interrupting question. This act, his interrupting question, and the way he stands up to ask it, make this to be a kind of ancient honor shame scenario. It'd be kind of like one of you, if you were to just stand up right now and ask me a question, it would be interrupting and it would put all of us on edge. If Jesus answers the question well, then he will rise in honor and the lawyer will decrease into more shame that will have been winning the juxtaposition, if you will. If, however, Jesus is stumped, if he's stuck by the question, or if he asks it poorly, he will decrease into shame, and the lawyer, having puzzled him, will rise up in more honor. All of this would be true even if the lawyer's question were genuine, but it's not. The text actually tells us that it's not. The question is actually a test. He's not asking it because he really wants to know or because he is seeking to grow or because he is hoping for greater edification of the people around. He is asking it as a trap. The text tells us so much. And I'll remind you at this particular time in salvation history, there was a rather clear right answer to this particular question. According to Orthodox Judaism, the right answer would be that we enter into eternal life by obeying the law of the Lord. That was the thing. That was orthodoxy at that particular time. Now, there were 613 Old Testament laws. And so there was plenty of discussion and disagreement among rabbis and other religious folk about which laws took precedent over other ones at certain times, and especially if they were in conflict. But generally, it was agreed upon that you enter into eternal life by obeying the law of the Lord. But Jesus has been going around and inviting disciples to follow him. And he has even been suggesting that you find eternal life according to his way. And so the question ends up being a bit of a trap. If Jesus speaks of salvation apart from the law, he will then be publicly named as a heretic and he will be demoted If Jesus, however, simply says that you enter into eternal life by obeying God's law, then he's just like every other rabbi and religious person. He is nothing special. The question is a trap. It's seeking to hang Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Today, it might be a bit like asking a pastor or a politician or even your neighbor to state publicly what they think about Abortion, or immigration, or masks, or human sexuality. 
The goal in that kind of question is not genuine inquiry. Typically, it's to pick sides and to hang someone on one side of a polarizing issue. The temptation in those moments is, of course, to play the world's games according to the world's rules. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. I hope you notice that. It is always of utmost importance to pay attention to Jesus and what he does. And in this particular moment, rather than hamstringing himself with a soapbox kind of answer that plays to one side of a divisive issue, Jesus actually becomes less polemic and more personal. He leans in and finds a new way forward, and his strategy involves three simple acts. First, he answers the question with a question, actually two in this instance. Then he speaks to the heart of the questioner, and then he seeks to solve real-world problems. He does this again and again and again throughout the Gospels. So in Matthew chapter 15, when some people come to Jesus and ask him, kind of mean-spiritedly, why he is not honoring the tradition of the elders, Jesus answers their question with a question. Then he speaks to the heart of his questioners, and he proceeds on to seek to solve real-world problems. In Mark chapter 12, when some people come to Jesus and ask him about his governmental tax policy, whether we should give money to Caesar or not, Jesus answers their question with a question, then he speaks to the heart, and then he goes on to address real world needs. In Luke chapter 6, when people are watching Jesus ever so closely, in order to trap him, of course, to see if he will actually heal someone with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Jesus knows their hearts, and so he goes to them, he asks a question, he speaks to their hearts, and then he goes forward to address and solve real-world problems. In John chapter 18, the text from just a couple weeks ago, when Pontius Pilate tries to pin Jesus on a question, are you the king of the Jews? A question that would be polarizing and get him into serious trouble either way. Jesus responds to the question with a question. He speaks to the heart of his questioner, and he goes on to address real-world problems. So it happens here again. As the lawyer seeks to pin Jesus on the horns of a dilemma, Jesus returns the question with two questions. Then he speaks to the heart, and he addresses real-world problems. The questions he asks, as you remember, Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? And now the lawyer is on his heels, he has to put his own skin in the game. He has to answer honest, honestly and authentically what he thinks. The lawyer says, surprisingly, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Fascinatingly, that's the exact same thing Jesus will say elsewhere is the most important thing. This is no mere coincidence. Remember, there's 613 other commands in the law, and it is actually rather peculiar. Jesus seems to be the first to have plucked out Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and put it alongside Leviticus 19, 18. And yet they both do it. In this exchange, Jesus has apparently already found a point of common ground with the one who is otherwise attacking him publicly. 
They agree. The greatest of all things is love. This should be the rule that helps us to interpret all the other 611. Love is the main thing. So then Jesus affirms the lawyer's answer, and then he turns up the heat. Rather than simply saying, you are right, well done, young Padawan, and then he just sit down and it proceeds forward. He says, you are correct. Do this and you will live. He takes the lawyer from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, from right thinking to right living, to right, from right answers to right actions. And this, of course, leads the lawyer to ask his follow-up question. He wants to justify himself. And so he says, who is my neighbor? The spirit of the question, again, is negative. He wants to justify himself. He wants to vindicate his already done actions. He wants to be able to say, I'm loving the right ones. And in particular, he wants to be able to say, who are the ones that I'm not obligated to love? His question is trying to draw a line so he can exclude some from the command to love. Jesus responds to his question with a story, of course, which is the second scene, the imagined scene that Jesus creates in response to the man's question. He tells the story of a man walking from one place to another, from Jerusalem to Jericho. These images up here are helping us to get a little bit of our bearings. The farthest left is a picture of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It is a road that is about 17 miles long. And it has an elevation change of about 3,500 feet. For comparison's sake, my family was recently in Yosemite. And so we took a hike. One of our hikes was eight and a half miles long. It was near Half Dome, up near the waterfalls, Verna and Nevada Falls. If you've been there before, a great hike. Eight and a half miles long, an elevation change of 3,000 feet approximately. That hike took us five hours to accomplish, and it was 20,000 steps according to the pedometer. So it gives you a little bit of an uh, indication of how big these hikes were. My youngest did it in his Crocs. That's what he's showing you in the last photo. He did it in his Crocs. Uh, this one, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, would be twice that length. It would take nearly all day, a difficult hike. If you're a hiker, you can recognize that. And importantly, this road was also recognized as dangerous. It was known to be one where there were lots of nooks and crannies for bandits to hide and they would attack those. So the advice was don't travel alone and don't travel at night. That's even still some of the advice for this particular road. But of course, the one does travel alone and he does get attacked by the bandits. The second and perhaps more important thing to know about this scene of the story that Jesus is telling is the background, the cultural background of it. The story has four characters, an injured man, a priest, a lawyer, and a Samaritan. Sounds a little bit like a joke that you might tell, right? <laughs> so three guys walked into a bar, and the fourth one ducked. First service didn't get it either. <clears throat> Regardless, the point is that there is real deep tensions between Jews and Samaritans here, okay? Okay. Uh, once upon a time, they were the same people, kind of like humanity at large, or even like the American dream that we would be united. 
and yet they have parted ways and tensions have risen up. They live in different places. They have become different races. They have a different creed and so other things that have driven them apart. So much so that the Bible tells us, John chapter 4 verse 9, that the Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. There's actually a historical record from the year 9 AD, which is right smack in the life of Jesus on earth, where some Samaritans snuck into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans otherwise worshipped on a different mountain. Uh, They snuck into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and scattered bones all over the place. An infuriating act of sacrilege, if you will. I'm a Hope College graduate, as you know, and a parallel, lesser degree, but a parallel would be the great rivalry between Hope and Kelvin. That's why the anchor is up there on the screen. And there was a time when I was a student there during the basketball season that Hope students caught rumor of Kelvin students who were attending to come on campus on a Friday night, the night before a big game, and they were going to paint the Hope anchor maroon and gold. An infuriating act of sacrilege, right? (laughs) So a group of students caught wind of this, and particularly a large portion of the football team. Last service, we had both the basketball coach and the president of the college in the sanctuary. I was telling them secrets they didn't know from this particular time. The football team decided to have a sleepover in Dimnit Chapel, which is immediately nearby the anchor, and they were going to be the uh, unpleasant greeting party to Calvin's pranksters, and their plan was to duct tape them to the light posts and leave them, leave them there till morning for the newspapers. <laughs> they never showed, so it didn't happen. You didn't read about it in the paper. Uh, but if that story were to unfold at all like the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10, it would have had to have had some kind of radical shift where either one of the two colleges would show up to the other and serve breakfast or do something other than perpetuate the, the angst that otherwise existed between the two. Joel Skuntanis is trying to draw that out with his painting over here on the edge. Uh, his painting, his new modern rendition of the Good Samaritan, except this one is called the Good Syrian. Another version today might be fitting the Good Russian or the admirable North Korean or the good Republican, or the good Democrat, whichever one you think is more offensive, that would kind of be the point of the story that Jesus is telling in this particular instance. And by the end of the story, Jesus has actually taken the original question and turned it on its head. The question was, who is my neighbor? And it's asked in a way in the hopes that you can exclude some. By the end of it, Jesus has the question being asked, Who is acting neighborly? Am I acting neighborly? That's the key question that comes to the fore by the end of the story. Brings us to scene, well, let me quote a scholar here on this one. I love this from from William Barclay. This is a quote about the Good Samaritan. He says, he alone was prepared to help. A heretic he may have been, but the love of God was in his heart. It's not uncommon to find the Orthodox more interested in dogmas than in help and to find those whom the Orthodox despise to be the ones who show the greatest love for others. In the end, we will be judged not by the creed we hold, 
but by the life we live. And so the good Samaritan ends up being the exemplary one in the story. Scene three is the story of our lives, you in your neighborhood, and our invitation from Jesus to act neighborly. At this point, I think we've landed where nearly every sermon ever on the Good Samaritan typically lands. I grew up in the church. Maybe you have too. We've heard lots of messages here. It usually ends up with some pastor telling a certain congregation or a group of people to go out and be a good neighbor, to do the good thing, etc., etc. My question is, will you do it because I said so? I don't think so, actually. We're Protestants. <laughs> You're more likely to protest than actually obey. And even if you did it because I said so, is that enough? Do we actually do good simply because someone tells us to? Even better, do you think the Good Samaritan did good because he simply heard a sermon the Sunday before telling him that he should? Was he on the road because he was on a mission? No. The text tells us he was just traveling. He did the good thing because he is the kind of person who does the good thing when it comes up in front of him. This is actually a very common biblical message. We do what we do because of who we are. Our actions follow our identity. Or in the very words of Jesus, good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. It's perfectly normal to expect an apple tree to produce apples. It's rather odd to expect an apple tree to produce oranges. So how do we become the kind of person who does the good thing, and especially if we aren't naturally inclined to love our neighbors? That's the question I've been wondering on. And I wonder if we simply start by praying, by praying for our neighbors, anyone who is right before us. I'm basing this on some very real-life observations first real-life observation is this. We pray about the things we care about. We pray about the things we care about. Think about your own life. If you are particularly excited or hopeful about some new opportunity, if you are particularly worried about an upcoming surgery, or if our kids have just recently been on mission trips and they have hit a bunch of hiccups along the way, we are more likely to pray, right? If you watch the news and you hear on the news that there's been a great earthquake in Afghanistan, and if this pricks your heart, you're more likely to pray about it. If not, it probably just passes by and doesn't end up in your prayers. At our home, I sometimes ask our youngest son to pray, and when he does, it is a wonderful, beautiful, and cute litany of the things that he cares deeply about I kind of wonder if God says the same thing about me when I pray. <laughs> a cute litany of the things he cares about. <laughs> we pray about the things we care about. Real life observation number two is this. If I start praying about something that I don't naturally care about, but I start praying about it as a discipline, because I'm praying about it, I actually begin to care about it. Can you relate? This is real life stuff. I know I've experienced it. I've learned it by experience. I commend it to you as well. And especially in regard to the neighbors that you might not naturally love. If and when we pray for them, we become more likely to care about them. And then we're more likely to act neighborly towards them when the opportunity arises. 
So here's the week's big challenge. Pray for your neighbors. Just begin praying for your neighbors. Do it even just for a week, once every day at least. I know some of you are now thinking, how? How do I pray for my neighbors, especially if embarrassingly I don't even know their names, right? True in some instances for me as well. No problem, no shame. We learn by caring. We learn to care by praying. And so take this website down, www.blesseveryhome.com. It is a way, a website designed to help you know your neighbor's names and to pray for them by name. That is a live tracker of prayers that are being offered by real neighbors who have names. If you sign up, go to the next slide there, you'll get a few different things. It'll cost you your address uh, and your uh, email address. What you'll get in return is a map of your own neighborhood and then a daily reminder of your neighbor's names so that you can pray for them by name. And you are invited to do these other activities to pray, care, share, disciple. It's a very, very simple way. And the discipline is built into an email in your inbox every morning to be praying for your neighbors. And I think that as you do this, you'll find, as I have as well, by praying about them, the entire neighborhood experience is different. You even look at the houses differently. You certainly interact with the folks on the streets differently when it comes before you. Now, there's all kinds of other uh, metrics that this website will help you track. If that's your jam, you can jump all over it. The good news is God hears your prayers anyways, whether they're tracked or not, which is a good thing. The second thing you might might be asking is, how do I even know my neighbor's names? The second thing you might ask is, how should I pray for them if I don't know them very well? I'll suggest uh, the ways that I've been doing it. There's a thousand ways, and you can do uh, your own way, but here's the four ways I have. Pray for their health. Pray for their family. Pray that they would pray. Pray that they would be stirred up by God's Spirit to turn to God in gratitude, in confession, for guidance, for help, whatever. Pray that they would pray, and then finally, pray for an opportunity to be a good neighbor. Quite simple, pray for their health, pray for their family, pray that they would pray and pray for an opportunity to act neighborly towards them. Easy way to pray for your neighbors. This brings us full circle back to the original question that Jesus has now upgraded. The question was, who is my neighbor? But the intent, of course, was to exclude some, to narrow the definition of neighbors. Jesus changes the question and says instead, am I acting neighborly? Are you being a good neighbor? That's the invitation of today's story. And the good Samaritan is offered to us as a good example because he acts with compassion and he acts with generosity to the person who is in front of him, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what they've done, whatever, whatever, whatever. He responds and acts neighborly to the one who is in need right before him. And the story concludes with Jesus simply saying, go and do likewise. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.
Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above every other Jesus, the only one who could ever sing. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. We pray this morning. Feel free to keep your eyes open as there are some visuals to aid in our prayers today. Pray with me. Loving God, your love for people is so evident. You love the rich and the poor, the citizen and the foreigner, those with family and those without. You cause the sun to rise on the evil and the good. You send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous for you despise nothing and no one that your hands have made. Grant that we may be conduits of your love, your grace, your mercy, and your truth in our actions, in our speech, in our relationships, in our resources, and stir us to be bearers of good news, beacons of hope, wellsprings of joy, and good stewards of the message of grace that you have entrusted to us in the places to which you have appointed us today. This morning, we pray for our gathered and scattered Fellowship Church community, for the injuries and illnesses that ail us, for the trials and challenges we face, and for the sweet and simple joys of families and friendships, and for all the good works that you have prepared in advance for us to do. We also pray for the neighbors we sit alongside each week, the people who make space for us in the pews we inhabit, the people who pass the peace too much each Sunday, reminding us of the peace we have with you. This morning, we also pray for the neighbors who surround our church, specifically for those who have lost loved ones, for those who care for the dying, and for those who are facing death or even grappling with this possibility. This morning, we pray for our children in the schools around us, and for the educators and administrators and parents who partner to form the minds of your children. This morning, we also pray for the creation that you have asked us to steward and serve and tend and cultivate for the plants and animals that are our neighbors too. This morning, we also pray for the individuals, the couples, the families that live in the neighborhoods surrounding our building. For their, healthy, for their health, for their loved ones, for their faith, and for their abundant, the abundant opportunity to serve them well. And we pray for those 
neighbors that live near us in our own respective neighborhoods. And we take this time to lift their names to you in our hearts. Rise up, O Lord. Stir zeal and passion within us. Capture our hearts for what captures yours, that our church and neighborhood and city might not only proclaim, but also be good news. Show us how we might participate in the work that you are doing among us, that we might create belonging wherever we are, that we might help people discover and grow in you, and that we might take every opportunity to serve so that this corner of the earth might be a foretaste of Christ's coming kingdom. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Stand as we sing. Jesus, a name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever sing. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you.
Friends, the question of the day, the question of the week is, who is my neighbor? Or better, am I acting neighborly? And the invitation is to simply pray for your neighbors this week as you go out to do that. May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Go in peace.